And while he was working as a shepherd, he encountered the burning bush. And we spent a lot of time last week uh, discussing the symbolism of the burning bush. And we also uh, discussed how the burning bush was part of something called the prophetic uh, call scene. So that's something that recurs every time a prophet is called in the Bible. And here God is calling Moses specifically to engage in a mission to free the Israelites from the oppression of the Egyptians. Now, I, I want to stop here before we kind of look at the, the meat of uh, this passage. Because um, I think it's something we don't step back and think about enough. Uh, because we're really familiar with these stories. So, you know, sometimes we kind of think like, oh, yeah, that's just the way things are supposed to happen. Uh, there's almost an inevitability about them. But, you know, it's kind of weird, don't you think, that um, God would bother with Moses at all? I mean, you know, there's any number of ways. I mean, you know, God's all-powerful. There's any number of ways that he could free the Israelites. He could simply snap his fingers and they would be free. But it's weird that he decides to go through anyone, much less Moses. And, you know, really this happens all throughout the story in the Bible, and that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here. God chooses to work through humans. Uh, He calls priests, prophets, judges, kings, all throughout the Bible. And many times uh, uh, we see in their stories them fail. Uh, They disappoint. They don't work out. And yet God continues to do so up until Jesus comes as a human to bring life, prosperity, and abundance to creation, you know, which has been uh, what we've talked about in Exodus, uh, that we, uh, that why it's so important for the Genesis background, that's God's goal for creation. And it's interesting that God never gives up on that goal for creation. Uh, despite sin and death, God is trying to bring this life, prosperity, and abundance to his creation. And he does so through humans who he had appointed in Genesis to be the one to lead that creation. And so I think it's interesting to step back and just kind of see Moses' part of that bigger uh, story. Now, last week we spoke a little bit uh, about the characteristics of a prophetic call uh, 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 prophetic call type scene. So, you know, there's these recurring stories in the Bible, these genres, and uh, they have common characteristics. And so the common characteristics of a type scene uh, usually include that the person objects. Uh, you know, we can think of different examples of this. Like, for example, in Jeremiah, if you'll remember, Jeremiah is called to be a prophet. And Jeremiah says, I don't want to be a prophet. I don't think it's a good idea. And the reason he gives is he's too young. Uh, so all sorts of objections are presented. And God typically answers these uh, uh, objections in a couple of ways. He usually says, uh, you know, promises, look, I'm going to be with you. Usually there, there's almost always this phrase, I am with you. And then there is a sign. Now, our passage today begins with Moses objecting to God's call, as is typical. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Now, uh, Yeah, we sometimes, uh, I think, judge these people a little too harshly. Like, oh my gosh, Moses, it's like God. He's like, there's this whole burning bush and everything like that. Like, don't you get it? Um, And, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're like me and you grew up in the Baptist tradition, uh, we use that to, like, infer guilt. Like, you're like Moses and, you know, shouldn't you feel bad that uh, God's calling you and you're not doing anything? 
But, you know, I, I don't think, I think we ought to be, like, lay off poor Moses here a bit. You know, Moses probably has, like, a lot of good reasons for wondering why God would choose him. I mean, why would God choose him? Why would the Israelites bother listening to him? And even more so, why would Pharaoh listen to him? I mean, you know, all we know about Moses so far from the background that we've given in Exodus is that he's a failed revolutionary, he's not respected by his people, and on top of that, he's a wanted fugitive from Egypt. So, I mean, Moses seems like a pretty poor choice. Uh, So I don't blame him for objecting. Um, But God answers him with this promise to be with him, which is typical. And in addition, he gives him a sign, uh, which is also typical. But... Uh, you know, if you're, if you're kind of following along and we're listening to the story, you may have noticed that this is a very strange sign that God gives Moses. Uh, you probably noticed it when we were reading it. Anybody, anybody want to take it like, like, what is weird about this sign? The sign is you won't see it until after it's over. Right, Yeah. <laughs> It's not really a great sign, right? It's something that happens in the future. Hey, guess how you're going to know you're the one who was actually chosen to lead the the Israelites from Egypt? After you do that, you're going to come back here. Like, (laughs) you know, um, that's kind of strange. The sign is that his call is legitimate and God is with Moses after the fact that he does what was going to do. So, yeah, that's not how signs given to prophets uh, generally works, okay? So, you know, one famous example might be uh, Gideon. Gideon is called by God to save the Israelites, and he asks for a sign, and God does this weird thing where he says, hey, look, it's going to rain. Go put this, uh, you know, wool rug out, and it won't be wet. And Gideon's like, oh, that's crazy. And he's like, I guess they're really, uh, I really am getting called. You know, that, you know, it's kind of a weird thing, but at least it seems to make sense. This doesn't seem to make sense because the fulfillment of this sign is in the future. However, I think that's a clue to us. I think this is supposed to make us kind of scratch our heads and wonder what's going on here. And I think it fits into the larger point this passage is trying to make. So let's just just kind of think about that for now. I'm just going to let that kind of hang there. And as we go through this passage, uh, I'm going to come back to that and try to tie this together. Now, it's at this point that Moses raises his next objection, okay? So, you know, he wants a, he wants a sign. God tells him about coming back to this mountain. Uh, and uh, his next objection is, he says, you know, well, hypothetically, you know, if the Israelites were to ask, what is the name of the God that is sending him to the Egyptians? How is he supposed to answer In other words, Moses claims to be speaking in the name of the God of their fathers, but how are the people to know that's actually true? And, you know, it's kind of weird because it kind of seems like Moses is almost asking this question, but he's part asking it for his own self. Like, Like, he wants to know who the name of this God is. Now, this may seem a little confusing to us. And I think it's partly because we live in a culture that's largely monotheistic. I mean, if you acknowledge that there's divinity, it's usually like one God. And if you don't acknowledge there's a divinity, you know, there's no gods, right? So that's kind of our choices in our culture. There's either one God or no gods. Um, and, you know, there's a simplicity about that. But in this world, uh, 
it was far more complicated uh, because they lived in a polytheistic culture. There were multiple gods. There were gods everywhere. And so uh, before I get started on this passage, which, like I said, this passage is, like, really confusing. Like, people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what this means. And uh, I'm going to get into some weeds here when uh, we start looking at it. But... um, I want to talk about, kind of give a big picture, a little background. Some of you are probably familiar with this, but I feel this is a good time to explain the different words we use when we talk about God and how they are translated in our modern Bibles. Now, it's important we understand these concepts because it's going to make it a lot more sense about what's happening uh, in this text. So it's a little ponderous here, but Okay, when we read the word God, so if you look in your Bible and you read the word G-O-D, okay, that is a translation of the Hebrew word Elohim. Okay, so for an example, if you look at verse 11, Moses says to God, or Elohim, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God responds in verse 12 with the sign about going back to the mountain, and he says the people would serve God or Elohim on this mountain. So anytime you see God, that's a translation of Elohim. Okay, now, here's what you need to understand about the word Elohim or God. Elohim is a title, okay? That's not a name, it's a title, okay? It's like saying king. It's kind of a generic kind of word. Uh, And the title refers to kind of like any kind of divine being, okay? Remember, there's lots of divine beings because it's a polytheistic society. So if you are talking about a divine being... You know, no matter if it's like, you know, uh, your God or somebody else's God, even in the Bible, when it talks about angels, because they come from uh, heaven, from the divine realm, they are referred to as Elohim. So Elohim is like a more generic term. It's more a title. Any entity that resides in heaven is an Elohim. And the culture pretty much accepted a large variety of Elohim. In fact, Elohim is actually plural, okay? When you add im, when you hear im at the end of a word in Hebrew, it's plural. Now, it's really interesting because in Hebrew, anytime the verb is attached to Elohim, it's a singular verb. So the Hebrew is almost like barring this polytheistic word, but it wants you to understand when it's talking about like God, the God of Israel, like the one true God, that it, we're talking about a singular, okay? Um, so really weird, I get it. But... Um, And not only did they believe in any Elohim, but each people group uh, had an Elohim they were associated with. And often this Elohim was tied to a particular location where they lived. So if you lived in Babylon, if you grew up in Babylon, uh, Marduk was your Elohim. Now you believe there were other Elohims, but he was kind of like the important Elohim to you. Uh, And because he founded your city, he was responsible for sustaining your city, he provided for the people of your city, and all your family and friends worshipped Marduk ever since your city was founded. So you believed in other Elohim, but Marduk was kind of like your Elohim, okay? Now, so given that background, you can see why it would make sense uh, that Moses and the people of Israel might want some more specific information than an announcement by Moses that the God of their fathers had sent him. Uh, That the people worshipped a deity that their fathers also worshipped was just kind of what everyone did. Okay? So so if, uh, you know, uh, the Israelites, if if Moses comes and just says, like, hey, I represent the God of your fathers, they're like, so what? 
you know, that's not really, like, you know, it, it, people would have almost been suspicious because it's very vague, okay? Now, as we read the, press, the passage, God answers Moses' question in verse 14 by telling Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So your Bible's probably all saying like capital letters, I am. And uh, in verse 15, say this to the people, the Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Uh, so we're given two different names here. Okay, so in verse 14, it tells us I am, and it's in the first person, okay? I am, first person, right? Let's go back to grammar class. And then in verse 15, the same name is used, but it's in the third person, okay? So instead of I am, it would probably be better to translate it he is, but like our Bibles probably say, like your translation probably always says the Lord. Okay, and the Lord is the translation of the word Yahweh in Hebrew. Okay, so so God is Elohim, Yahweh is the Lord. So from now on, anytime in your Bibles when you see the Lord in all capital letters, that is a translation of Yahweh, which is this third person form of I am. Okay, like I said, I know that's like kind of crazy, but. This passage is totally crazy and it gets really confusing because the translation is all over the place. And I don't think it's actually very helpful at all. Uh, Mostly because no one's quite sure what is being said here. And what is being said here is really complicated and abstract. You know, the, the Old Testament really is pretty concrete. This is like one of the few places where it's like really abstract. And then on top of that, we have all these traditions and interpretation with like a really long history and they're being preserved. And so we have all this like mishmash of words and ideas. And so that's what makes understanding this passage super confusing. Um, so I want to resolve a lot of these issues and try to get some clarity here. Uh, but, you know, first of all, let's just get, get you know, big picture out of the way again. Uh, Elohim is God. It's a title. Yahweh is the personal name that uh, means that is translated our passage Lord, okay, which is like a terrible way to translate it, but it's kind of what we're familiar with because of, of tradition, okay, and that is the answer to Moses's question. When the people ask me, you know, who sent me, I'm supposed to answer uh, in English Lord, okay, which is what is translated our Bibles, but in Hebrew it's Yahweh. I prefer using Yahweh, but sometimes I worry that if I use it too much and people are kind of unfamiliar with that term, uh, that you sound like some kind of cult leader or something, because we're not really familiar with it in our tradition. But anyway, I actually like using Yahweh a lot. Now, okay, so that's kind of big, giving you some categories and some terminologies to hang on here. But before we get into some details here, Let's think back to the big picture, because what we need to understand in this passage is that it's in the context of the call of Moses. So let's not forget this passage is part of of Moses being called. Moses wants credibility when he talks to the people of the Israelites, because he knows they will not accept his message if he simply tells the people that a divine being that their father worshiped sent him, right? Because that's pretty generic. And in response to Moses' concern, God reveals to Moses his personal name, which is Yahweh, 
And so that's supposed to give Moses a way to prove to the Israelites that Moses is a legitimate messenger of this particular deity, of this particular Elohim. Now, there's a lot of unanswered questions there. For example, Moses is an Israelite, so why doesn't he know that the God of his fathers is named Yahweh? Uh, We're not told. Uh, You know, perhaps the name was unknown to Moses because he grew up in uh, Pharaoh's court among the Egyptians. Some scholars even think that this is the first time that the name Yahweh has been used. Uh, This is the first time God has revealed that his name is Yahweh. And uh, even though, you know, we find Yahweh all through Genesis, uh, but some think that that was an update, okay? That, like, Genesis used a different name. Yahweh's an updated version of that name. Um, there's even a passage in Exodus 6 that we're going to get to soon that makes it sound like that Yahweh can be a new revelation. Now, I tend not to adopt that view. I tend not to read Yahweh as a new name of God given for the first time. Uh, If the point of the story is to provide legitimacy for Moses' call, then it really wouldn't make sense to give a name that people have never heard before. Now, that's my, my view. It, it, like I said, there, there's probably a, about every other word in this uh, passage is like debated. But uh, getting back to the point, though, while I think the name Yahweh is not new, some new information is being revealed here. Uh, in verse 14, we are given an explanation for why the gods of the Israelites' name is Yahweh. Okay. So, you know, that's what I want to focus on, controversy about it aside. Now, as I said earlier, our Bible translates Yahweh as Lord, but that is not what Yahweh means. Uh, Actually, you know, like I said, Lord is a title, uh, which comes from the Hebrew word Adonai. And so again, we see that our translations do a poor job because another title is being substituted for the name of God, And the whole point here is that God is revealing his personal name. So Lord is a terrible translation of this, but, you know, tradition, right? So what about God's name is being revealed here? If we go to verse 14, after Moses asks, what is God's name? God responds with the phrase, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, the name of God is I am. And the explanation of the name for I am is given as I am who I am. So what's that mean? Okay, glad you asked. Uh, In Hebrew, the phrase I am who I am reads Eya Asher Eya. Okay. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because there are three things you need to know about this this phrase Eya Asher Eya, right? So, you know, again, I know this gets a little confusing, God's name is Yahweh. The reason his name is Yahweh is Eya, Asher, Eya. Okay. First, the word Eya is the first person singular form of the verb to be. Okay. So it seems to make sense. It seems to make good sense the translation of Eya is I am. Except there's a problem in Hebrew. And the problem is it's really, really hard to figure out the tense of a verb without context. And we don't have context here. So even though I am makes sense, you can equally translate Aya as I was or I will be. And some scholars even argue that another translation that would be totally acceptable here is I will cause to be. 
Okay? So there's like a lot of possibilities other than I am. Uh, I am's kind of been like the traditional way it's been translated, but there really is no reason why it should be one over the other. Uh, and in fact, I would argue that there's really good reasons it shouldn't be I am. Because in every other instance of ayah in the Old Testament, like pretty much every other time it's used, ayah is in the future tense. Okay? So, you know, here we don't have context, so it's a little open as to what the tense is. But in the rest of the Old Testament, where ai is used quite a bit, okay, we have that context, and pretty much almost every single time, it's a future tense, okay? So, you know, if you're not really sure what's going on here, and if you're going to pick one, I think I will be is the most likely, okay? Now, that's going to be important. That's not just uh, some uh, academic, you know, whatever. Second, Okay, so first thing, future tense, I will be. Second, we need to understand that aya is part of a, a, a particular phrase. Aya, asher, aya. And this construction of a verb plus the word asher, followed by the same verb, has a name, of course. It's called the item per item. And it's clear that this is this item per item form. So one way we can understand the meaning of the divine name, the aya, asher, aya, is to understand what the item per item form communicates. Now, when we examine other occurrences of this item per item phrase, we find that it shares some common features. Uh, it's used to describe vagueness, mystery. There's a kind of, of uh, indefiniteness or uncertainty about it. So if you want to communicate uncertainty or indefiniteness, you can use this item per item instruction. In fact, we have like a really, one, like I was kind of trying to think about like, okay, how am I going to get this point across? And we actually have like a really good uh, phrase in English that we use that kind of gets at the same uh, idea. Uh, it, like, so let's say like uh, it is what it is. Okay. Like you hear people say that all the time and it's kind of like, eh, you know, what, what can you do? It, it really is a good way to communicate that indefiniteness in the same way. In fact, we see, uh, we find other examples of this being used uh, with this indefiniteness. Uh, Jacob says uh, in Genesis 43, uh, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. You know, it's that, that I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Uh, okay. And what this indefinite nature does is it creates an openness for the verb use. Uh, for example, Ezekiel. Ezekiel says Yahweh will speak what he will speak. So you hear that construction again. In other words, uh, what Ezekiel is trying to do is say uh, Yahweh could say anything. You know, uh, it, it could be any number of messages. It could be judgment. It could be blessing, whatever. Yahweh is, it, 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 it could be anything. So it's open. So another way I think to think about this phrase is that it allows the verb to have the widest possible range of action, okay? So the indefiniteness means that it could be almost anything, okay? So that's the second point. There's an indefiniteness, but it's an openness to a wide range of activity. Third, we know that throughout the Bible, a name is given to a person along with an explanation of that name. For example, Eve names her son Cain, which sounds like the Hebrew word for acquired, because Eve says, I have acquired a son with the help of the Lord. So that's why Cain's name is Cain. Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for rest, 
And he is given the name Noah because his father's hope is that one day he would bring rest to creation. Uh, Jacob's name sounds like heel, uh, like the like heel on your foot, because he grabbed his twin brother Esau's heel during his birth. Esau is called Esau because his name sounds like the word hairy, and he was born unusually hairy. So you kind of kind of see how those how those explanations work, and. When we look at these explanations, we see a pattern that emerges. Uh, some people, like Esau and Jacob, uh, their naming formula is based on nouns, like heel or hairy. And in some way, the nouns describe their character. J- J- Jacob is kind of like a trickster. He's a heel grabber. He's someone who uh, doesn't use his own uh, energy or planning, but like relies on somebody else. Uh, whereas like Cain and Noah are based on verbs. Uh, like acquire arrests, and these describe actions or events. So in Noah's case, it's this hope for a, a, a future event that, that he would bring rest. So let's put all these ideas together and see what they tell us about this divine name, what Yahweh means. So Yahweh's name is derived from this phrase, Eya Asher Eya. And Yahweh is actually the third person rendering of that verb Eya. So, so Eya is I am, or I will be is what I'm arguing for. Yahweh, it would be more like he will be, okay? Uh, and uh, in a, so, so Eya is part of this construction, item per item, that communicates indefiniteness. And we said that was a wide range of verbs. And since the verb to be is almost always indefinite. Uh, it's probably like the most vague verb we have. This phrase is even more indefinite. It is meant to express the widest possible range of meaning. And also because the name Yahweh is based on a verb, then the name is not meant to describe the character of God, but rather the action or events of God. Just like Noah's name is about bringing rest to the future. So if we put all this together, the name Yahweh describes an undefined but open promise of future actions with the widest range of possibilities. Okay. So, if you've been kind of following along here, if you've been kind of picking up what I've been laying down, that means we can start to make sense of that question earlier about this prophecy, this sign that's given to Moses about something that will be fulfilled in the future. Um, Just as Yahweh is not given a description of his character, it's about the openness and possibility of the future. And by giving his personal name to Moses and the people, uh, what that means is God is entering into a relationship with the people. You give somebody your name because you want a relationship. And that relationship is based uh, on what is revealed by the name of Yahweh, which is future-oriented and indefinite. So Yahweh's name is about possibility. It's about hope. And it's about, because it's future it's about uh, requiring faith. In other words, uh, what we learn is that those who enter into relationship with Yahweh learn who Yahweh is, not by being told, but by experiencing his future action. Okay? Moses and the Israelites will soon do that. They're going to do that through all those miraculous events of the Exodus. They're going to see God's work uh, through the power of the plagues, the miracle at the sea, uh, the fulfillment of the promise of freedom, the giving of, the, giving of the covenant, uh, this provision of nearness to Yahweh, and the amazing demonstration of mercy that uh, Yahweh will make all throughout uh, their wilderness journey. All that is to come. 
But what it means now is that it has to be believed in faith. Uh, and only then can it be experienced. And so that's why I think that the sign is given to Moses as a future sign. Because what Yahweh is laying down here is the fact that this relationship is going to be have to be based on faith, about potential, about openness. And so what we learn here is that, that Yahweh desires this relationship with humanity, but uh, and he desires to make himself known, but he does this uh, based on a relationship that is open to possibility. And that openness to possibility requires faith. Now, uh, Yahweh does not define himself, in other words, but he reveals himself as we experience him. That's the key. God will not be limited. And all, God also chooses to be known by what he does, his actions in relations with the people. Now, I get that this is like really abstract and there's a lot going on here. And scholars have debated this passage for centuries. But what I want to do to try to bring all these ideas a little closer to us, so that this isn't all academic, is look at another story. And this time, this story is going to involve Jesus in the New Testament. As the author of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is the most perfect revelation of the person of who God is. It's kind of like, like Jesus is the name, but even more so. And while the people of the Old Testament experience really cool things like burning bushes, Jesus is, as Hebrews called, the exact imprint of God. Now, in our New Testament passage, we have this guy, Philip, who becomes one of the disciples after he encounters Jesus. And because of that encounter, he realizes that Jesus is the prophet that was promised to Moses in Deuteronomy. And notice, notice how there's something about uh, Jesus that Philip that, that has absolutely convinced Philip. And so Philip delivers this news to uh, his friend, okay, Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel begins the story much more skeptically, you know, because uh, he says, you know, how could anything good come out of Nazareth, okay? You know, Jesus was from Nazareth. And so Nazareth is this kind of like dump. It's kind of like this backwards town. I don't know what the equivalent would be. Maybe like, can anything good come out of Gastonia or something? I don't know. I don't like Gastonia. I have bad memories. Long story. But in any event, uh, Philip gives this great response. I love this response to Nathaniel's objections. Come and see. In other words, be open to possibility. That's what he's trying to say here. Nathaniel's a skeptic, but Philip convinces him to have hope. And when Nathaniel meets Jesus, he calls him an Israelite, which is kind of weird because it's kind of an old-fashioned term. It's, it would probably have sounded really strange to him. But he gives him a sign that he was recently under a fig tree, and apparently that's enough to convince Nathaniel. Uh, yet Jesus promises an even greater sign, a vision of heaven itself. And so what I want to do, the reason I'm bringing these stories together and how I want to tie them together is that in both of these, both the story in Moses and Nathaniel, God is offering the future. He's offering possibility. He's offering hope. You know, uh, there's a lot of symbolism in both these stories. But the, the point is that this is about the future. It's about a relationship with God that's built on what's going to happen in the future. And the divine name of God is given to us not so much as it is about the character of God, but it's given to us about this future possibility and hope. And what is required for us is to drop our objections and skepticism, just as Nathaniel does. And, and I, I think the big point here is that, you know, we have this idea that this world can't change, that this is just how things are. 
And what Jesus is saying, what God is saying, is that no, it doesn't have to be this way. In the Christian tradition, we have a word for being, uh, for this openness. We call it faith. And that's what it means to walk in faith, to be open. It's about accepting that God will be who he will be. Uh, you know, God can easily overwhelm us with awesome displays of power, yet in doing so, I don't think that's the kind of relationship God would wants to have with us. I often have thought about this this week. Like, why is faith such a big deal in the Bible? Like, why does God like, hey, like, I want my people to know by faith. And I think that's the reason why God doesn't want to rule by power. We spend a lot of time talking about power and what God does with power and like the proper exercise of power. In a relationship where like God just overwhelms us with power, that's not a real relationship. That's not the kind of relationship that he desires. He doesn't want the relationship to be based on power. Instead, he wants a relationship to be uh, like we experience a relationship, like we would experience, you know, with someone we love. It's, it's always about continually discovering and learning more and experiencing them. That's the kind of relationship we want, and that can only be experienced by faith. Uh, that is exactly uh, the kind of world that God wants. And to believe, uh, and he doesn't want us to believe by simple tricks about burning bushes or fig trees, but by much greater promises. Promises involving things like heaven and freedom from Egyptians and lambs lying down with lions. And nothing less than the, the, the than complete life and freedom and the abundance that he has desired for his creation in his presence all along. What God is doing here is he is inviting us as his people to participate in the work alongside him, in relationship with him. And what he does is he gives us his very old name as a sign. Uh, I like this quote by St. Anselm. I do not know so that I can believe. I believe so that I can know. I think Philip puts it best. He puts it another way. More simply, come and see.